0: Hey everybody. Welcome back. So we tried our little, uh, experiment moving it to six o'clock or whatever we tried last week on Thursdays and it was just too much, um, fuss, too much hullabaloo. Um, so just to keep things simple, we're going to go back to, to this one o'clock track and, um, also in the spirit of my usual start with housekeeping stuff with, uh, the study group, the book study group that's starting in September, that will be on a Tuesday evening. So I guess on one level, the Tuesday the evening slot will sort of be satisfied when we do the book study thing, which I'll say a little bit more about, and then we'll maintain this ongoing track. So sorry for the, for the little experiment that, um, that uh, tried. <laughs> I think I can, I think I can, but it couldn't. So um, some housekeeping things, we always start with that. First of all, welcome back, number 21, amazing. Just like the 21 Taras, it's an auspicious number. So housekeeping stuff, Um, we got some really fun interviews for those of you who are nightclub people, really cool interviews coming up. I actually spent a couple hours this week with uh, David Loy, who happens to live in my neighborhood, sort of 15, 20 minutes away. And he's a remarkable individual. author of, I don't know, a dozen, 14 books, um, a really sensitive, deep scholar uh, practitioner, and that's what makes him unique. He, he uh, doesn't just do this tremendous kind of research with his books, but he's a very devoted Zen practitioner. So we had a, just a terrific afternoon, and he agreed to get, come online with me. So we're, uh, I'll be recording that this coming Saturday. He's an amazing guy. I, when I first was introduced to his books, I was so blown away that I then literally systematically just set about reading everything this guy has written. Um, So I think you'll agree with me. He's a special one. Daniel Love also, uh, I've been in contact with him for months. He finally got back to me, which is great, out of the UK, author of uh, quite a nice book on lucid dreaming. He's agreed to come on, so we're working to set that up. Um, My dear friend Dustin DePerna, who's author of a number of books and also a very leading thinker writer in the world of integral studies. And what I refer to, it's not my terminology, so um, getting more kind of common usage these days, transreligiosity, working with traditions that really kind of transcend any religious boundary. Um, He's wonderful in all these arenas. And so Dustin has also agreed to come on. And then uh, Um, Finally, uh, i developed this beautiful relationship, I think I might have mentioned this last week, with an Islamic scholar who lives in Baghdad. He just reached out of the blue. So we've struck up a really lovely conversation, really informative guy, and he's teaching me a ton about mystical Islam that I had no idea, and even this kind of yogic uh, dream yoga tradition within Islam, which I was clueless about. So he's also agreed. So I'm really excited about all these amazing people coming on. Um, I'm doing a program next weekend uh, and I'm sure Prem who's probably listening my dear friend uh, at Yogaville she'll probably put in the checkbox link to that this is a four-day dive into the Bardo's Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, doing that with her and her community it's a really great community so that's coming up and then this book study group uh, I mentioned last week and again one or two more weeks of shameless self-promotion. My book came out last week, so I'm shamelessly self-promoting it. Um, This book is not an easy dive. Um, And so inspired by something I did with Ken Wilber when he went through Integral Spirituality, one of his very best books, he did a similar type of thing about 15, 20 years ago that I attended and I thought it was just fantastic. It was so much fun to spend this much time with Ken online going through the book. And I said, why, you know, why don't we do that with this book? So, starting uh, September 22nd, and Andy can put the link into that, we'll be doing a a book study group on the entire text. Um, I'm going to say a little bit more about that today. I started last week, a little bit more about the three sections of the book. And then, like usual, we'll open it up and have opportunity for discussion, Q&A on any topic that you want. Um, So, start lining up your questions, and after my 20-25 minute riff, max, we'll open it up but one thing i do want to start with just so we don't lose kind of the framework of what we're doing here is is again just a brief reiteration of you know, just two of the so-called emergency my term emergency meditations that i have found super helpful and so one of course is this really beautiful one breath meditation which comes from the Mahamudra tradition. At least my teacher, Kemper Rinpoche, taught it. And so what we do, couldn't be easier, so it makes it so powerful and applicable. For the duration, literally, of one inhalation and one exhalation, one breath, we simply do a meditation session for the duration of one breath, okay? So we'll we'll start or (laughs) non-start with that. So one breath meditation. That's it. I've done my meditation session for today. Super helpful to do when you start to feel contracted, reactive, irritated. Um, I use this practice a ton. The other one that maybe we haven't, uh, that we haven't revisited in a while, I think i taught this in the second or third session way back in March, is this complaint meditation, um, which again is also very, very powerful because it's immediate, it's like a lightning strike something you can use on the spot and so the practice here is that whenever you have the urge to complain and lordy is there like enough to complain about these days Um, before you open your mouth before you express yourself um, pause for a second one breath meditation can come in handy and as a type of contemplation slash analytic meditation this is actually a form of the pashana the is a multivalent term that has so many different kind of iterations and meanings. One instance uh, is, is this idea of reverse meditation. I mean, I'm sorry, um, analytic meditation, where what you want to do in this case is whenever you feel the urge to complain, pause and inquire, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? And then stay with that. Stay with that. Establish a relationship to that. Um, It's a very powerful way to wake down into the wisdom of your body, which is where the sensation is coming from, usually unwanted. You don't want to feel this. And so you can kind of reverse that trajectory of of, uh, complaining, unskillful expression. Stay with the energy, which actually starts to purify it. Just by staying with that energetic, you start to clean it up because you're cleaning up your relationship to it. Um, And you can start to deconstruct it. You can start to de-automatize, kind of step back down to the very energy to which we append. The energy itself is is pre-conceptual. It's um, pre-verbal, pre-everything. It's literally a percept. And so if you can stay with that, then you can start to see Um, immediately how quickly we we throw all these are called adventitious defilements, all our reactivities, all our defaults, all our silly histories, that then take this very simple precept, this percept, this very simple um, sensation, and transforms it into all kinds of unnecessary complexities that of course then we need to share with everybody. So uh, this is a really powerful one. Whenever you feel the urge to complain, stop silence your mind, drop into your body, and inquire, what am I feeling right now that I just don't wanna feel? Stay with that. So let me just say a little bit more about, uh, about this book. Um, I gotta take advantage of this green screen thing and use this while I have it. Um, the second in the uh, dream, what I'm calling my dream trilogy. Um, and while it is definitely the deepest dive of the books I've written so far, In many ways, it's also the most practical and applicable because it deals with some foundational tenets in the wisdom traditions, especially Buddhism, that uh, everything circumambulates. And so if you are a student of the Buddhist tradition, you have probably discovered by now that everything circumambulates this topic of emptiness. Um, In this book, which is about the daytime practice of lucid dreaming that daytime practice is in fact the practice of illusory form illusory form is empty form so this book is really about applied emptiness it's about using these foundational tenets which then like i mentioned last week have tremendous applicability in the arena of the dream and i have a couple cool supporting quotes i'll share with you Um, this is a way to really take this otherwise almost philosophical, theoretical concept and make it make this rhetoric our reality. Um, and it's massively important in the Buddhist tradition um, because in many ways you could say that in this tradition, the Buddhist tradition, to realize emptiness is in fact what it means to wake up, to attain enlightenment. Um, dream yoga came about largely as a way to explore this topic. And in the nine stages of dream yoga, as I articulated in my first book, every one of those stages, if you look at at them again, every one of those stages, with a possible exception of the first stage, is really a more subtle, sophisticated relationship to this topic, understanding emptiness. And so the the dream arena is a marvelous way to do this um and i wanted to share a couple supporting quotes along these lines one is from serenity young who's a wonderful author where she writes the illusory nature of dreams serves as a prime example of emptiness end quote and minga Rinpoche, jay one of my main guys i love this guy he says quote during the daytime phenomena appear to be more dense this makes daytime a tougher schoolroom for learning about emptiness. It is much easier to recognize emptiness in dreams." End quote. And even His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that um, what separates the dream yogi, uh, this is my kind of parenthetical insertion from traditional like lucid dreamers, is that the dream yogi <clears throat> explores dream yoga with the principal intent to understand this thing called emptiness. And so, just to show you how, again, how central and important this topic is, the Buddha's entirety, you know, he taught for some 45 years in this vast, amazing corpus of teachings, was retrospectively fitted into three classifications called the three turnings, the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. And the first two turnings, in other words, two thirds, of the Buddhist teachings are about this topic. The final third, by the way, are the teachings on luminosity, and that's interestingly enough the part two of my book. And so these two fundamental ingredients, in fact, uh, very often when people ask me about, well, you know, what what is what is Buddhism? Yeah, it's a religion for tax purposes. It's a philosophy, it's a science of mind, but even there, saying that it's even a science of mind, um, that's, that's a really kind of tricky thing to say, and my friend Evan Thompson, who wrote a really cutting book on just this topic, Why I Am Not a Buddhist, really interesting read, I highly recommend it, goes after this notion that dozens and dozens of teachers um, profess that Buddhism is a science, science of mind, and he's, he goes in a really elegant way saying you can't really say that, um, but that's a slight sidebar. But the idea is that Buddhism, you know, in terms of definitions, religion, philosophy, science of mind, but my favorite definition is Buddhism is a description of reality. And that fundamental irreducible description, there's so many ways to describe reality, and all the different teachings, all the different jhanas, all the different turnings have their ways to, to um provisionally define what is reality. But in my exploration of this tradition for decades, the irreducible definition, at least as far down as I can take it, the irreducible definition of reality is, it's the union of luminosity and emptiness. And so obviously then understanding these two ingredients um, are enormously important. If they were easy to understand, we'd all be enlightened. They're not, they're extraordinarily subtle, very deep, Fundamentally teaching on the nature of non-duality, which by the way, when I when I interview my friend David Loy, my new friend David Loy on Saturday or Sunday, this is exactly the book that we're going to talk about. His his first amazing corpus called Non-Duality in Buddhism and Beyond, which is a masterpiece. So I'm going to return to this in my conversation with David. But for now, this is why I think um, I was so inspired to write this book, is because not only can I now really explore these topics that are central to my path, to my heart, central to the the Buddhist tradition altogether. But I can start to now bring them in union with these nocturnal meditations and show how dream yoga, sleep yoga, lucid dreaming, all kind of circumambulate this core um, topic. And so as I alluded to earlier, the book is in three parts. Part one, literally called Deconstructing the Sense of Self, the Edge of Emptiness. And so this is where I I use the Buddhist tradition, but not exclusively so. I also draw from the Neoplatonic tradition, from, I mean, you name it, Nandu Shaiva, Tantra, Advaita, Vedanta, anywhere I can find supporting um, statements around what the Buddhists put forth as this trajectory of emptiness. So the the whole first part, the first part of this book is about this. And so understanding it, of course, is not so terribly easy um, in the briefest possible way. Emptiness fundamentally means, many of you already know this, that when you take a very, very close look at anything, you will not find an inherent thingness there. Svabhava is called in Sanskrit. You will not find an inherent thingness to anything. So emptiness doesn't mean nothingness. That's the near enemy. Emptiness means no thingness. It means that when you take a very close look, you, will, you won't find anything. Everything is dependent on everything else. What you will find if you take that close look, and that's what I try to do in this book, is a vast nexus of causes and conditions that fundamentally links everything to everything else, like a a deep ecology stretching back to the beginning of time. And so this is of, of incredible importance and applicability. And here's a couple of just very practical applications. I mean, we are part, the human, species is part of nature, part of the animal kingdom, part of this this nexus, this deep ecological nexus. We are part of it. And if we violate that nexus, which is what we're doing with our hubris, with our um, technological prowess, seeing the world as nothing more than natural resource that is used, you know, available for our consumption and use, well, you're violating the network and the laws of reality. And sooner or later, you're going to get feedback, and we're getting that feedback. So I, I don't want to get too political here, but I, it doesn't take too, too long with a sensitive eye to look. I mean, what's happening with the virus? You know, uh, This is a, a, a very kind of potent wake-up call um, to realize that we can, in fact, not separate ourselves from reality the way we're doing. Ecological devastation, global warming, warming is also part of the wake-up, the alarms that are ringing throughout the world basically um, exhorting eventually commanding demanding that well, you can't run this way you know this particular narrative doesn't work because it's not in resonance with reality and so that's the thing i also want to emphasize is that even though it may seem a little bit theoretical the points it's only theoretical i e emptiness because we haven't fully experienced it yet and so uh, one of the really surprising very important consequences of emptiness, is when you realize the empty nature of things, being empty of self nature, means being full of everything else. And so therefore, emptiness really means fullness. And this is really important, because otherwise it's just the void, it's just this like spooky nihilistic thing, not at all. Empty of self means full of other. And so therefore this gives birth spontaneously to compassion. So when you understand emptiness fully, the natural automatic reflexive expression is compassion. And so therefore, this is also a marker. If if, if you're not compassionate, <laughs> if you're not living a kind, connected, caring life, you don't understand these foundational tenets. Because the automatic reflexive expression of emptiness is in fact compassion, the expression of fullness. And so one of the things I do that, um, I had a great time doing with this book is I just, I just draw on as much literature um, information I can from everywhere to support these somewhat radical claims, at least radical for the Western lens. And I just wanted to share one with you now from a physicist, Chet Rainbow, who's also a beautiful writer. And so I I just found this one so elegant, I just had to share it with you. And so the book is just peppered with these sorts of supporting statements. So this one's pretty cool. It would be wonderful to tag an atom of carbon so that we could track its journey. Every carbon atom that ever was still is. The carbon atoms of the Earth's crust were once, before the Earth was born, part of the dusty nebulas of space. Our carbon atom on the surface of the Earth makes its way around and around like a pilgrim or a gypsy, now in a rock, now in the sea, now in the air now in the body of a living creature. Its alliances are eclectic. For a while, it may join up with a couple of oxygens and travel the roads as CO2. Or it may take up with a larger crowd of nitrogens and hydrogens and oxygens in the protein of a morning cloak butterfly. Or it may stick with its own kind in the regimented ranks of a diamond or a block of graphite. I just love this kind of stuff. And so, you know, the other thing that's connected with this that I riff on a little bit is literally with with every breath we take, we inhale, I mean, trillions of atoms. And included in this bed of atoms, quite literally, not metaphorically, are atoms that were once in the body of Adolf Hitler, that were once in the body of the Buddha, that were once in the body of Jesus Christ, Shakespeare, Beethoven, you name it. And so, when the wisdom traditions say, Christ is within you, it, it is, this is somewhat literal. It's not just metaphorically. Metaphorical, so with each breath, we're, we're sharing these atoms that Chet Raymond was talking about. Atoms that have been recycling through all sentient life forms from the beginning of time. And so therefore, we start to see, even at a biological, physical level, that we're this mosaic, this, this kind of cosmological mosaic of uh, aspects basically fundamentally made of stardust. Maybe that's why everybody wants to be a star, right? Is because we're made of stardust, right? So um, this is the kind of thing that that I riff on in in great detail as a way to, again, bring out very practical applications of viewing reality in the world in this way. Um, So, Yeah. Let me go just a little bit further. So part two of the book is on, um, it's called manifesting clear light mind the play of luminosity. And so this goes into the final third turning what's called the third turning on luminosity itself. And this goes into this marvelous exploration of, okay, okay, okay. We've cut, cut, cut the via negativa, the, um, the slashing and the burning to get rid of all these fallacious ways of looking at the world. When you cut, 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 what's left? Well, again, it's not nothing, it's no thing. Well, what is that no thing? One way to talk about it is what's left is light, light. Um, And this includes not just physical light, but light as the fabric of reality and basically the light of the mind. And so this part of the book is in fact a deep exploration of what is this light? Um, and you know I, I can give you just one brief kind of contemplation that we explore here some of you may have heard this from me before but you know when we see things in the physical world like right now we see things because photons are bouncing off particular uh, objects hitting our eye retina right and we interpret that as this particular external object so there's external light that illuminates this So close your eyes for just a second. We can do this very brief kind of contemplation. Close your eyes for just a second. And as a brief reflection contemplation, think back on your last dream to connect this to again to dream yoga. And when you're in that dream, things are appearing. There seem to be objects in that dream, seem to be appearances in the dream, right? We can't doubt that. Have you ever reflected, where does that light come from? What illuminates the objects in your dream? Where does that light come from? You're seeing, right? You're seeing something in the dream. How, what's what's the phenomenology of that? What's taking place there? Where's that light coming from? It's the light of the mind. It's the light of the mind itself. And so we explore this aspect of light. Where does that light come from? But it's not an external light source. And so the book goes even further into some pretty deep plunges into um, what's called tantric epistemology or non-dual ways of knowing. Again, it's exactly the questions I'm going to bring to David. These objects are appearing in the dream. They're lit by the light of the mind. So the question that I will explore with, uh, with David is, what's actually going on in terms of subject object here? <clears throat> Who is saying what? And this leads to these really shattering conclusions that I present a number of meditations that attempt to guide one towards this realization, where the appearances are self-illuminating self-aware. Um, and again, this is a way to talk about non-duality, which is not easy to do. The minute you start to talk about duality using dualistic language, you're going to end up with irony paradox at best because the map, the map, especially this dualistic map, can never describe the territory. So this is where the book gets increasingly more subtle, we find it starts talking about the very heart nature of mind and reality. And again, just to show you that, again, it's not just cognitive light, it's not just mental light. This also is related to the fabric of the universe. And so I draw a little bit here on the work of David Bohm. Many of you may know of his work. Amazing physicist, mystic, friend of Krishnamurti, student of Einstein. I'm getting a lot of traffic recently. I remember reading his book, Wholeness and the Implicate Order, like 25 years ago, um, which is an amazing, amazing exploration of these foundational tenets. And so here's just one supporting quote from him, and then we'll open it up to questions. Matter, as it were, is condensed or frozen light. All matter is a condensation of light into patterns moving back and forth at average speeds, which are less than the speed of light, frozen light is energy, and it's also information, content, form, and structure. It's the potential for everything. End quote. And so this is a this is a hardcore physicist. He kind of tra- you know transformed a little bit into a mystic, as did many others, by the way. Ken Wilber wrote a beautiful book called Quantum Questions, where he uh, gathers a lot of the quotations from the great physicists um, kind of mystical quote, references from the from the physicists and so some of the statements I bring in the book it's it's really pretty interesting I put a statement from a, a, a great meditation master um, and not too far down the road is it's a, a statement from a physicist um, and you can't actually tell who wrote which so this is the sort of stuff I riff about riff about in, in the first two parts of the book and then next week when I come back I'm going to talk about the third part with you a little bit and then end my pitch. This is a little bit of a a pitch, not only for the book, but this is the kind of thing we're going to explore, obviously in tremendous detail with the book study group. And so next week, I'm gonna come back and talk to you about part three of the book, which is basically, okay, you're saying all this radical stuff, me as a representative of these wisdom traditions, what do we do with this? Where's the so-called evidence, where's the proof? What does Western ways of knowing science um, have to say about it? So the third part of the book that I'll talk about next week is all the kind of Western support from all these different disciplines that really comes together to um, brace, buttress this view, this illusory, fundamentally illusory view of reality. So anyway, that's all I got to say for today. Um, We can open it up to questions, I think. Andy might have one or two written ones out there. And if uh, if Rem is listening out there, um, he sent a question. And for the life of me, it just evaporated back into the implicate order. I can't find it anywhere. Um, Every once in a while my computer just literally evaporates an email, which is kind of bizarre. Maybe it's a dream sign. So if you're listening, my friend, um, I I would appreciate if you could just come on and ask the question, because I didn't get a chance to write it down and I don't remember everything you were asking. But in the meantime, I know Andy has one or two to pass along, so open it up. All right, well I see, uh, Joe Perrin
1: has his hand raised, so why don't we start there? And give Joe the audio.
0: Audio, Joe.
2: <laughs> Hi there. Hey. Nice, nice to see you again. Backdrop. Is that the vijatras, a vijatras? No, that's the Vajra Regent's calligraphy. Oh, I love it. Nice. And uh, best we can tell, it's a dragon, but it has tiger stripes. Yeah cool very cool love it yeah. yeah one of my favorites yeah that's a so, good one so uh two things one a uh, little clarification please you said um uh empty of self means full of other uh-huh i believe
0: and I did see something. And,
2: and if you if we think about the shentong and Rontong traditions of empty of self and empty of other um the, the only issue I had with saying full of other might imply everything other than what one regards as oneself, which means that uh, phenomena are real and substantial. So to say, uh, if I'm empty of self, I'm full, uh, empty of self means full of other um, might be confusing if you think of other as, oh, so, so I'm empty, but the television set is, isn't. It's real and has its own solid right. identity.
0: Right, good point.
2: So, so I, I think that to in technically the Shentong tradition of empty of other means it's empty of everything other than the um, uh, enlightened nature.
0: Correct. And that's, let me say something right there, Joe, because that's important. And that's one of the things that gets a little bit slippery when you start talking about these very nuanced states. Is that, you know, uh, one word can have completely different meanings on different contexts. And yes. so everything I'm saying, and again, I didn't say it because there's just only so much time, was fundamentally, as you well know, principally from the wrong tongue position. John Tongpas talk about it in the way you're alluding to. I didn't go there just because it's a little bit maybe too subtle for what I wanted to put across, but I love the interjection, Joe, because again, it just shows that when you get to these extremely subtle states and experiences, one has to be extremely careful um, and yeah, just yes. not, careful with usage of language and what one is actually pointing to, because otherwise there's so many booby traps. There's so many tripping right. points here. So your your interjection is very well. And, taken.
2: and one one of the things that I did in one of the sessions I was uh, host was helping you out with um, was the the version of the Thich Nhat Han. Holding up a blank white piece of paper. Saying, oh yeah,
0: I, uh, I almost read that quote today. Yeah, that beautiful it, quote. Yeah, you know it
2: being. it's empty. Uh, that that everything is included. You say, do you see the clouds? Do you see the rain? The trees, the farmer, the lumberjack that cut down the trees, the farmer who, that grew the cotton that made the shirt of the lumberjack, the mother of the, you know, mm. and so so there's everything in that uh in that piece of paper except for one thing and yeah. that is paper it's empty of the con- it, it does right. the concept paper is not in there
0: exactly and, and that's
2: then go, it, and then you go to a book and the paper is there and everything's in there except for one thing and that is book, book. exactly and, and so that this and if we take it to ourselves then everything is in here the whole universe is contained in this thing that I refer to as Joe, except for one thing Joe. There's no Joe here. Right. It's everything else is. So it's full. Yeah. That way, that's what you were saying. It's full of everything but that identifying label of, of self. So, well, so well, um, said. well said. The only other thing I wanted to ask is something that, um, sorry about that something that we um, had talked about many times before, and I think every day we have something more to cry about mm. and was hoping that you might introduce the crying
1: meditation.
0: Oh,
2: yes. Last time I asked for it, it was your ah. birthday and you didn't want to cry on your birthday. That's
0: right, no good. Yeah, yeah, the crying meditation, Zach Stein's thing. Yes, I, I have to fulfill my promise. Um, well, again, yeah, I can do that. I'll write note to self. Um, for those of you who are nightclub members, I, I learned this practice from Zach Stein, the philosopher. And so you, you can actually learn it directly from him via the interview I had with him. But it's a it's a powerful practice, very much in the spirit of what are called the reverse meditations. Very short, easy to do, so note to self, crying meditation, because it's not my birthday. Well, every day is my birthday, right? Every day I come into being and, and die. So and a number, my... a number of other people on the chat have asked okay. for that today so prime meditation i can do that um note to self to get it done so thanks for the for the interjections my friend good to see you ciao all right um i'm going to jump back over
1: to a chat question real quick this is from barry in your dreams of light book page 192 you wrote in a series of revolutionary experiments neurophysiologist benjamin libert showed that people had yeah a little bit. Limit. okay Limit. sorry yeah. so that people had the conscious willing of movement about 300 milliseconds after the onset of muscle activity right eeg recordings also showed that neurons in the motor cortex associated with the movement became active a full second before the actual movement could be measured right if the if the brain starts something before the conscious quote i decides to act where's the free will I thought the discussion on 194 to 195 really essential for how we can effectively utilize the one breath meditation. Any um, comment, I'm putting this information in practice. Yeah,
0: did, did he just type all that stuff into the chat column? Uh-huh. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, I mean, Lordy, what, what to say about this. This, this, is a, this is one of the more um, unsettling parts of the book. Um, so much to say here. It, it, it's basically, in again, this is a little bit prescient because this is all encapsulated in the third part of the book, where I have a couple of chapters on uh, the illusion um, of everything, basically, and what illusion actually means. And so I go after time, space, things, and in this case, free will. So the, this, the this, the very controversial um, and absolutely outrageous studies of Benjamin Libet. Um, are designed to challenge this notion that philosophers and mystics um, contemplatives have been debating for centuries that that uh, we don't have free will free will is fundamentally an illusion and so um oh my friend there's so much to say here i'm not even sure how far down this rabbit hole i want to go right now because it's just such an enormous topic and it's of such great importance but but fundamentally, there, there is some good news here. Again, it's not just this nihilistic thing that you know we live in, in, in a world where we have no um, kind of conscious agency. Um, what the implication here is, and what I explore in the book, using Libet's work and others, is that while we don't have free will, who, here's another way to say it, several ways to say it, who we think we are, and again, Joe just said we're not, right? Um, who we think we are has no free will. Who we really are is only free will. Big W. Um, and so this small agency, this, this thingless thing that we call the self, there's no fundamental free will here. And this is, this is just, you try to wrap your mind around this and it's a total mind F. You just don't even know how to work with this. But it, it, what you do have that Libet and others write about is you do have veto power which means even though you may not have free will um, especially over what arises in your mind. And this is, this is, this has tremendous applicability for meditators. You know, basically you can't control the arising of the contents of your mind. Yeah. You can muscle it for a little while for sure. You can corral it down, snuff it for a little while, but fundamentally, you know, you can't control the arisings in your mind. So you don't have free will in that level, but you have free won't free won't, which means you do not have to act on whatever you think or feel. And this ties in not only buried to the one breath meditation, this ties into the complaint meditation. So if something comes up on, 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 even on some level, you don't really, you almost can't control that, the arising of it. And you shouldn't. The, the, the sense of control comes from relationship to that arising. That's where you have veto power. This is where renunciation comes into play. This is where discipline can, comes into play. And this is where I write in the book all the, the great religious contemplative uh, restraining orders come into play. The Ten Commandments, the Lojan slogans, the Quran teachings, all these exhortations from the wisdom traditions that largely start with do not, thou shalt not. you know, all these don't, don't, don't which is a way to um, work with free will. I don't have to say that. I don't need to do that. I don't need to act that out. And of course, if if you don't abide by that, then what happens is just this incessant, relentless creation of karma. So uh, Barry, great points, my friend. This is such a big complex topic that maybe that's all I'll say about it now. But this notion um, using Benjamin Libet's work, which is still being, there was an article in the New Yorker not that long ago, really sophisticated thinkers, scientists now coming in and, and, you know, revisiting that. So this is a really um, charged topic, not only in neuroscience, but also in philosophy. And Sam Harris has written a book about this. Um, Susan Blackburn has written a ton about it. There's so much information here. Philosophers throughout history have revisited this topic. Um, Fundamentally, I go after it as a way to continue to just pull the rug out, you know, rug after rug after rug. Pulling out and deconstructing, de automatizing um, this, this uh, fallacious sense of self, and therefore, you know, this fallacious sense of free will. So I'm going to let that go for now just because it's such a huge hornet's nest that we'll return to it in the book study group. But um, thanks for throwing in one of the more controversial parts of the book. Cool. All right. Here's another chat question. This is from
1: Nancy. I'm curious about the difference between dreams and thoughts. Are there methods to determine what is important to give your attention to in dreams?
0: Yeah. Nice question, Nancy. Um, so my maxim here is, and see if this speaks to you, thoughts are to waking consciousness as dreams are to dreaming consciousness. Right? So unless you're fully lucid in a dream, you're not thinking in your dream your imaging, your your mind is expressing itself in dream forms. Um, So there's no fundamental thinking taking place. When you become lucid to a dream, however, voila, guess what happens? You can bring, it's a hybrid state of consciousness. You can bring a level of consciousness, lucidity, to a previously unconscious state. So in other words, you can now bring some thinking to what was previously just dreaming. And this is where things get obviously really cool because then you're no longer buffeted around by the contents of your mind expressed as a dream. You now have the ability to actually interface with those contents, to work with them, to transform them, and eventually to self-liberate them. So um, if you want to ask a follow-up to that, that's where my mind goes with this question. Thoughts are to waking consciousness as dreams are to dreaming consciousness. Same underlying consciousness, same mind, um, just expressing itself in two different light forms. And so again to tie it back into my book there, the title itself dreams of light is code language. It's the title itself is multivalent On one level dreams of light refers to Practicing in the day with the practice with loose reform light eventually um, I Use it as a code word for manifestation of mind dream, I'm sorry um, dream I use as a code word for manifestation of mind. And so in this larger sense, um, everything becomes a dream. And and in fact, when one wakes up, this is what the Buddha discovered, the ultimate lucid dreamer, he came to this kind of discovery of the ultimate equanimous nature of reality, the one taste nature of reality, that everything is mind only, awareness only, goddess only, um, whatever term you want to append to it, clear light mind only. And so one very helpful way that I've discovered is to say that everything manifests at the level of awakening, everything becomes a dream. And there's so many um, interesting implications, applications here. One, very briefly, for, the, for those of you who are interested in death and dying in the Bardo teachings, this can therefore, so to speak, solve or answer one of the most common questions that is, is often asked of me when I teach on death and dying, and that is where do you go when you die? Well, with this understanding, you simply transition from one dream to the next. It's a type of what's called a recursive dreaming. You're simply cascading from one manifestation of mind to the next. It's just through various reasons, which I explore in the book, we confer an ontological status, a level of reality to this dream that we do not confer to the other dreams. And, and that's purely because of fear, which I also explore. So uh, maybe I'll stop and pause there because there's too many sidebars, but if that helps Nancy, that's what comes to mind.
1: Uh, yeah, she said that was sounding good. So That's
0: thanks. what comes to light. Okay, thank you.
1: Um, all right, we're going back to the raised hands. And next with the audio is Ted. Ted X. Hi,
3: Andrew. Hey, Ted. Enjoying your book, um, you. both audio book and the red. Oh, my God. Wow, I miss I miss your voice, but uh, he's doing a good, good job.
0: Yeah, uh, um, you must be having a lot of nightmares if you're soaking in my stuff that much. No, no,
3: no. But but th- that goes to my my question subject. Okay. Um, as you're aware, you know, I'm I'm I've for the last couple of years been basing my practice on preparation for death, and in your book, and also you've talked. About about it in first times um and you actually referred to it today as reverse meditations yeah um and one of the you know one of the reverse meditations is watching horror shows yeah um and i've been doing i've been doing oh, that whoa and dude I've been, to, I've been able to really watch some pretty horrific, horrific stuff um going to the felt sense of it, and not being agitated by it, which I, 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 I'm sort of pleased with. Cool. So I've decided to go to the ultimate ho- horror show, yeah. and I'm watching the Republican convention. <laughs> uh... <laughs> okay, go for it. And I find that I've come to a couple of conclusions. One is I need more practice um, to be able to watch that. But I've also uh, contemplated and also meditated on some thoughts about it and would like to get some input from you on how you're dealing with craziness. Okay. Okay. Um, And and one of them is that both parties – the message that they're sending out is fear-based that, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're different things to be afraid of. Yep. Um, and so that's that. And then there, there's also the recognition that, you know, mind creates everything. Um, and, and our karma is what influences how we react to what's arising and so when i listen to both parties i seem to be able to a certain degree put myself in those positions yeah nice and 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 see that but man the the tension and the aggravation on the one side is pretty strong and and i just would like to have some sure. little feedback from you on how you've just gone through this very calmly
0: yes yeah uh well you're a very intrepid explorer my friend so good for you yeah so ted is referring to a a little known um topic that i'm actually i decided to take a detour i don't know if i mentioned this earlier i decided to take a detour from all my dream writing, and I'm actually, Ted, I'm actually writing an entire book on this topic right now, um, because these practices are so important, they're so helpful, so that's the sidebar. But there are traditional little-known practice from the Mahamudra tradition that basically arms you with a tremendous skill set to work with unwanted experience, whatever it is. So obviously it has tremendous applicability, and so... Yeah, my teacher, just to toss in, like, why on earth would you be watching stupid things like horror movies? Well, my teacher, Mahamudra Master Kempo Rinpoche, actually recommended it. It's a form of what's called channel ground meditation, where, and I've done it with in my programs as well, um, rather intensive uh, experience where you watch these just god-awful, wretched films as a way to establish a relationship to god-awful, wretched states of mind. Because... It, um, one near enemy, a very powerful near enemy of meditation is this kind of feel good trajectory that, you know, the, the, the meditation can become too saccharine, too sterile, to remove from the grittiness of life. And so therefore what happens is when you experience the grittiness of life and you're only equipped with these saccharine states of mind, where does your meditation go when, you know, rock meets bone, as they say in Tibet or pardon my french when the shit hits the fan is as, as we say in america where's your meditation go so these practices that that ted is referring to are extremely powerful for really deep dive practitioners especially those willing to prepare for death and so i do a similar type of thing ted and you may have heard me talk about it before i i am a liberal democrat that's my that's my bias admitted um and i sometimes i will watch rachel maddow who sometimes I view as just as much an extremist as the other person, which would be all obviously Tucker Carlson and, and Sean Hannity from, from Fox News. And I will watch both and, and simply watch my levels of contraction, my levels of reactivity, and whether I can maintain a degree of openness when I'm exposed to something that I just don't wanna hear. Um, and so, you know, can I in fact listen to Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow with equanimity? Can I, in fact, somehow put myself in, in those respective shoes and those parties' shoes to, in, in fact, story their existence to see how, in fact, from their perspective, it's feasible to say what they're saying so that I don't just come down on it with my elitist superior view, but then, of course, there's, there's no dialogue. There's no skillful means there. There's no listening taking place. There's just superimposition, overt or covert, of my ideologies upon others. I mean, how helpful is that? And so, before we can really help uh, others, we have to be able to listen to them. Um, and being able to listen to them sometimes is really difficult when they're saying something that you just don't want to hear. And so, as a type of practice, I recommend what Ted is actually doing. It's not pleasant. The reverse meditations are not pleasant, but that's life. Life isn't present, pleasant. How do you work with really um, difficult states? You can work with them in these contrived artificial ways. And so, a lot more to say here, my friend, but fear-based, you know, just to say a little bit about that. Everything is fear-based because fear is, is the relative generative impulse of samsara. Fear is the primordial mood of the self-contraction. The minute open space contracts, it contracts out of fear. And this ties into what the emptiness things are about, where the ego is afraid of, of emptiness. Because from an egoic perspective, emptiness is death. It's akin to death. No thingness means egolessness. And so everything in the relative world, it's based on fear. You can recurse, you you can reduce to foundational, psychological and spiritual tenets virtually everything we do in the samsaric world. And fear, if you take a very close look, fear is, is a fundamental generative impulse and um, therefore working with fear directly is super important because sooner or later we we have to face it because we either relate to it or we live from it and this is why it sells this is why you can campaign on it this is why it markets because you're talking about a fundamental form of self defense literally Um, and so i'm not sure where else you want me to run with this um, ted but you know all i can say is you're doing some really cool things not particularly easy but it's like you said at the outset if you can you know observe these really horrific shows with a quality of of understanding and therefore compassion i mean that's no small thing right you feel the contraction you breathe into it you open and you're actually able to listen and then if you're actually in conversation with a person like this you can actually talk to them you can actually communicate Mm -hmm. with them and if you're ever going to so to speak help I, i use the word convert in a very qualified way you know, you have to be able to meet people where they are, not where you are. That's the definition of upaya, that's the definition of skillful means. And so, to voluntarily put yourself in, in conditions that really would otherwise force you to close down, to plug your ears, to cover your eyes, and actually maintain openness to that, that's a fantastic practice. Because then you can relate to your own unwanted experience with this type of openness. You can relate to others who may not speak your language, your vocabulary, your ideology, your beliefs. You can listen to them. And therefore, instead of you know, meeting fear with fear, you, you meet fear with love. And all the wisdom traditions will tell you, you will never defeat fear with fear. You'll never defeat, temporarily, yes, world wars have shown that you can do that temporarily. But the only way, uh, and all the wisdoms assert this um, un- unconditionally, the only way you're going to, so to speak, defeat fear and hatred is with love. And how are you going to do that? You know, you do it by working with in these ways, maintaining the ability, the capacity to stay open under the most adverse conditions, and therefore, from that open stance, you can respond instead of react. That's enormous. So I'll let that go for now. But as usual, really great questions and comments, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ted.
1: All right. And next with the
0: audio will be
1: Judith.
4: Okay. Yep. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Um, Andrew, I hope that your more kind of advanced students will bear with me a minute, but I've been plowing through um, luminous emptiness or, yeah.
0: Francesca Fremantle's book. Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah. So I'm getting to the Bardo's and I find it really hard. They're so mythological and to me, they're kind of the opposite of emptiness. How do you handle that? You know, I look at the hungry ghost and I think, shit, I'll never get beyond that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, can you sort of talk about that a little bit? So,
0: so tell me, Judith, when you say mythological, what do you mean? Are you well, mean when they cultural, describe, culturally based, you mean?
4: Well, when they describe the pictures, the actual, yeah. it feels mythological.
0: Yes. Um, it does. And and this is where you need to centrifuge out the spirit from the letter and engage in your own forms of cultural translation. So what Francesca does in this book, very bravely, is, is she un, uh, tries, I think, very successfully to unpack the complexities of this absolutely impenetrable text. It's so difficult to understand. What she doesn't do, because it's not her charter, is engage. She's a liturgical translator. Um, in this particular book, she doesn't act as a so much as a cultural translator and that's not her charter. So cultural translation, in my opinion, is just as important. It's outside the scope of what she attempts to do. And so in this case, what one needs to do is understand That these are archetypal like, for instance, very specifically what, what you're talking about is mythology is basically what some scholars um, write about is ritualized Phenomenology, and and what this means is we shouldn't take these things too literally because, as you put it, that is in fact anti-emptiness. That's reifying these archetypes. The archetypes, the fifty-one, uh, you know, hundred peaceful wrathful deities, which are exceedingly difficult to understand. Um, we shouldn't reify them. We shouldn't freeze them. They're expressions of deity principle. They're expressions of archetypal energies. And so to really understand those, Judith, we, we need to understand things like deity principle. I, by the way, again, I'm pinging to other references since I don't have exhaustive time here. I talk about this with, in some detail with the Sanskrit scholar Ben Williams. So if you're a nightclub member, we spend a fair chunk of time talking about deity principle. It's really important to understand that um, because without that type of understanding and also you know, another way that just pinged into my mind, is reading Trungpa Rinpoche's introduction to his translation, by the way, which he did with Francesca Fremantle. He translated it together with her, his, his monumental translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. His incredible 30-page introduction talks a little bit more about the kind of cultural translations. And so um, what I would recommend just for for kind of Purposes of buttoning down, I would recommend just plowing through the book and then um, coming back up when you're done to understand some of the foundational principles that are really being um, understood or, or, or I should say being expressed in this book. Because fundamentally, everything becomes principle, right? This is another way to say it. Even death is a principle, deities are a principle. Um, everything becomes uh, kind of Uh, multivalent in that sense you can use it on so many different levels so yes for sure what you're saying Judith if you take the deities to be literal you're missing um, the idea Um, understand deity principle then you'll understand what these deities are expressing to really understand that again this is one of the most um, transformative radical books ever penned in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition it's self-secret it's not easy by design to really understand it, you have to cast a very wide net again, beyond obviously the scope of what I can do here. To understand these deities, you have to understand the archetypal energies of the play of the mind. And in order to do that, you have to study the Yogacara, you have to study all these other things. That when you know, when you cast that kind of net, then you come back and then you see, oh, this is why Padmasambhava, Kamalingpa expressed this as this deity, this is why they say it in this way, and so. The, the energy, the investigation, that the work that is necessary to answer these type of questions, again, the book is self-secret by design. The, the energy that's required to understand and really answer your questions will really help bring this book to life. And, and therefore, not only will it radically transform the way you relate to your death, it will radically transform the way you relate to your mind right now, this particular dream that we're in right now. So maybe guide me a little bit more if you want me to say something other than that. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. It's uh, ritualized phenomenology. Evan Thompson writes about it in his book, you know, so there are other places we can track down that. That's the way to get your myth around this um, because it's designed to stretch and bend the mind open so that you start to understand some very subtle principles that you literally can't put these into words. So they try to put them into deities, even the deity, the archetype, the myth, doesn't really fully represent it. Um, And so these are just all fingers pointing to a moon, right? And so we have to understand, what is it that they're really pointing towards? They're pointing to something that fundamentally cannot even be put into image or word. And, And so even with everything I said, the irreducible level of comprehension takes place when you experience deity principle, when you experience what these energetics are all about. Because that's what, again, is revealed, whether we know it right now these deities are expressing themselves right now whether we know it or not they just express themselves in a much more powerful way when we die because they're no longer obtunded or mediated by the physicality of our of our current situation so it's not easy stuff you have to kind of wrestle yeah. with it
4: and is his translation Trumper's translation in his tibetan book of the dead is that the the, the is that where his translation is or his um introduction right i mean it's yeah. right there
0: in fact, I have it right here because I'm up. Okay. Another chance for me to sell my stuff. Yeah. I'm teaching a course. It's, it's just so pathetic. Uh, this entity it's coming up in November, which is why I'm not riffing on it. This real this interesting entity called Embodied Philosophy asked me to do a, a course on this book. So that's why I sat here and I'm working on it. Um, so I'll come back to that later. I'm going to do a four part talk on them. And, and some of the stuff I'm riffing on right now is exactly what I'm going to be unpacking with them okay. in November. Okay. Great. I'll back to that later. Okay, great. Thanks, Andrew. That's great. You keep looking at it, Judith. It's worth the trouble. This stuff is not easy. Deity principle is not easy. Emptiness is not easy. Luminosity is not easy. If it was, we would all be enlightened, Yeah. So we have to wrestle with it. This is, this is holy war in the best sense. We have to go, we have to go to battle. We have to work to understand these things. Um, and eventually going through it, you know, using this, this three-part pedagogical approach hearing, contemplating, meditating. So you're, you're struggling between the hearing and contemplating part, that's fantastic. Eventually, that'll even mature into the meditating part where all of a sudden this, this, this becomes your experience. Then you can come out just like Padma Sabhava did and then you can write a book about deities because you understand from your direct experience what they're trying to talk about. But yeah. you know, they're, talking, they're trying to talk about non-duality using dualistic mediums. Good luck with that. You can't do it. This is the best they can do. And so we have to stretch into and then beyond any dualistic medium, including the the archetypal images.
4: So it kind of reminds me of the Christian thing. It passes all understanding kind of thing.
0: It passes all conceptual understanding.
4: Understanding. And then matures
0: matures into true gnosis, true knowing.
4: Right,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, Okay. thank Thank you. you. Thanks, dear, great question.
1: Good ones today. Thanks, Judith. Okay, I'm going to jump back over to some of the chat questions. Uh, This is from Leah. How do we start with smaller steps to working with fear than horror movies and political conventions,
0: particularly with a trauma background? Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, if you didn't throw on that last bit, I could could say a few things from a more spiritual lens. Yeah. The, the trauma thing here's, there are several ways to work with this. First of all, you know, the, the psychological, in this case, mostly spiritual modalities have tremendous power applicability um, towards understanding, working with anything, including fear. However, when you're working with deeply embedded embodied intractable issues like um, trauma, I always, always recommend that people do this kind of work in conjunction with a trauma specialist, a trauma therapist, because trauma is, is in a different league of its own. And this is not to say that the spiritual tenets are not applicable, they're absolutely utterly applicable. On a, on a very deep level, emptiness can handle everything. It really is the irreducible, um, what, what they call protection, the irreducible kind of tool. But in practical reality, it doesn't seem to work that way. Um, just because there's so much momentum, so much habit karma behind the histories we bring to these very subtle skillful means. And so the first thing I'm gonna say at the outset is if you're working with some traumatic experiences, I absolutely positively encourage, again, this integral spectrum approach where you work with a trauma therapist. Once there's some you know, kind of confidence um, stability around that, Then, it's just like you're suggesting, then you start to titrate, you start to work your way in. You start to work with perhaps not going directly into um, fear, but maybe work with anxiety, which is just the level above, so to speak. Work with situations that are disquieting, work with something that just makes you anxious. Start to dip your toes into, into those waters. And then by slowly doing so, you'll gain confidence because you're not just racing and plunging into the deep end of the pool, you're actually starting to titrate, you're working way gradually towards a deeper end, and you will develop a greater sense of familiarity and the capacity to relate to these states on your terms. Um, and then slowly, 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 you know, when, when you work with these things, then you can start to bring in, uh, you can start to ramp it up a little bit. You can start to increase the temperature, so to speak, and work with increasingly um, more intense situations. And so you have to trust your intuition here. You have to really listen to your body. You have to work your way into these types of practices, these family of practices um, with deep understanding of uh, where they can take you. And I'm going to end with this, um, because when when I work with this material, one of the most important things to do is to really work to understand deeply the right view, the right view of the nature of mind. This is incredibly important. Right view is the first of the eightfold mobile path, the first factor of the eight factors it leads to um, the complete path from a kind of Theravada perspective. And right view, in this case, easier said, not so easy done is understanding that the nature of whatever arises is basically good and perfectly pure. And this includes, in essence, trauma. This includes, in essence, pain, anxiety, any unwanted experience, in essence, essentially, is this divinity, this radiance, this play. And so this may seem like an outlandish, outlandish kind of rhetorical um, proclamation, but all the wisdom traditions assert this, and and I can, in fact, I'm into it right now because I'm writing on it right now. I could riff off to you ten quotations from ten wisdom traditions that make this radical proclamation, of which Buddhism is just one. Um, and so, understanding this is really important because if you get in your bones, in your heart, that whatever arises, in fact, is perfectly pure, divine, basically good then the only issue was one of relationship to that energetic, relationship to that display, relationship to that arising. So this alone is, is, is game-changing. <clears throat> but it's, uh, again, easier said than done. Why? Because we live in a world based on a um, Judeo-Christian Christian, um, kind of original sin approach to things. We live in a world of reality, um, kind of dictated by the tenets of scientific reductionism which reduces everything into matter, into frisky dirt. And so everything in the Western world is a kind of degraded view. Um, And so transforming this degraded view, this reductionist view into an elevationist view, this view that everything is divine, much easier said than done. It's not easy because it goes against the grain of all our personal conditioning, our cultural, social kind of support networks. But this is, again, this also shows you how, how far and how deep these practices can take you Armed with this view, equipped with the meditations that implement it, with support from people that can guide you, you can enter the most horrific unwanted experiences with complete equanimity. Um, and in fact, that's what you know fundamentally is one fruitional aspect of, the, of this type of work. So uh, another just terrific, beautiful big question. If there's a follow-up to that, I can address it, but for the purposes of time, that's what comes to mind.
1: Thanks. Here's another chat question. This is from David. So, is a Tushita heaven just another form of a dream? How so, and what does that mean?
0: Yes. Uh, on one level, everything is a dream, even Tushita heaven. Um, it's just a dream manifesting in a particular form. So, uh, the <laughs> Tushita heaven is 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 still in in the realm of samsara. Um, Oh, geez, what to say here. So in Buddhist cosmology, also Hindu cosmology, but let's be very specific. In Buddhist cosmology, what we know as this dimension, this human realm, is just one of six major classifications of realms. Just now we're speaking just within the realm of samsara, confused existence. And within those, you can, you can take those six realms Um, And actually subdivide those depending on the system, you know, up to 27 or even more different domains of existence. Realms that are just as real or unreal as this. And Tushita Heaven is one of these kind of, of God realms. It's still within, my understanding, it's still within samsara. It's still not even in the domain of the pure lands. It's just a very elevated realm of samsara. And so that whole cosmology thing is, is I think, a very interesting thing to explore, but to be really kind of concise um, to the question that fundamentally every one of these dimensions is in fact dream in this larger level. Everything is just display of mind. Now that doesn't mean, again, just to show you the subtlety here, it doesn't mean it's display of my mind. That's solipsism. That's not what it's saying. It's a display of my mind in conjoined interconnected with all the other minds that co conspire to bring about this particular realm that we call consensual reality so I'll, I'll let that go for now unless you want me to take it further because we start to run into some you know pretty deep um kind of ontological domains that maybe are beyond the scope of what you're asking so i'm, I'm i try to be a little bit more pithy these days because otherwise what happens is i get so jazzed i end up running in these questions in 20 different directions so um, that's what comes to mind.
1: Oh, you're doing great,
0: Andrew. The... It's all about me. So whenever I hear that, I, I feel better.
1: <laughs> I, I'm really here for as your cheerleader. That's what I'm here for. All right. This, this is the next uh, chat question. It's from Marilyn. So do people blind since birth see in their dreams?
0: No. Uh, not if they're Not if they're blind from birth. Um, If they're blind, uh, what's the age? I read some studies, I can't remember, three, four, five. Then yes, they will still dream visually, so to speak. But even then, uh, there's no vision there. There's no eye there. That's just your habit translated and projected into the dream state. There's no vision in the dream, but they're still seeing, right? So who's seeing what? That's a different question. But fundamentally, people who are born blind do not dream the way we do. They represent their world differently. And so those types of representations are actually what are on display when they dream, but they don't dream visually. Um, If you lose your vision, I can't remember the exact age, three, four, five, somewhere after that, then yes, you will still dream visually.
1: Cool. And uh, going back to the raised hands and Next with the audio will be Erica. Can you
5: all hear me? Yes. Cool. Uh, thanks, Andrew. I, uh, I just want to say how much I relish your use of language. You know, at some point language, <laughs> you. you know, falls off, but you use it so well. And I guess the segue for me is,
2: you. you know,
5: there's certain things that stick. I have these little post-its and, and I've been doing the right here, right now um meditation um (laughs) it helps a lot um but i loved what you said a few weeks ago um uh, whatever we refuse during the day becomes the refuse of our night of of the night um and uh this is a, a wonderful thing and i've noticed like with my own ego mind you know i'm i i do therapy dharma i think you know um I'm not avoiding anything, but of course the dreams—you know—dreams have a; they have their way with you. Yeah. And I know. Um, so, uh, so as I was on on the the chat, I got really tired, and I I lay down, and I I, I kind of went to this kind of half sleep, you know, floaty place, mm-hmm. and um, and the first thought that that popped up was, where am I? Ah, cool. Just an instant um, uh, inquiry about the body, you know, mm. my body, and you know, that attachment to, to, to I. Um, <laughs> so the the thing you said before, uh, additionally, uh, was if you wake yourself up from a nightmare, it's kind of the beginnings of lucid dreaming. Uh-huh, can be. Yeah, can be, because um, cause I'm afraid I'm, I'm at a very remedial level. I'm kind of a, a lapsed, not a lapsed Catholic, but a lapsed uh, Vajrayana practitioner who had to get off my cushion at one point and, you know, practice these principles, you know, in my life. In a, they weren't separate, but uh, a lot of people around me were sick, and I just couldn't devote the time, and I made a very conscious choice that i had to um kind of investigate like like um in w- when kempo um, riboche said to Geshe michael roach uh, now it's time for you to go to work and he went to work in the diamond district he said pick a profession and and see see if these principles of dharma work mm-hmm. you know in, in the outside world so um so right now i'm trying to work with my nightmares um I, the, the compulsion is I want to wake up. I want to wake up somewhat before the ending. And I don't have, I want to want to go back to sleep and see if I can change the outcome. Mm-hmm. But I find that I want to, want to, want to, like it's it gets more and more removed because it is so unpleasant. You know, I think maybe I'll murder someone or someone's going to murder me. Um, so there's there's that, and and I guess I just wanted to say about trauma because it's such a part of my landscape, um, a book that really has been so helpful is The Body Keeps the Score.
0: Now, you know, I, I was just going to say that, and in fact, I have it, I just filed it, or is it? Yeah, I'm reading it, I'm also reading it, um, so yes, I couldn't agree more with you. I, in fact, I had it on my desk until I cleaned up my desk. I highly recommend it as well. Thanks for bringing it up.
5: Yeah. So, um, you know, it's almost as though you have to embody the trauma before there's any kind of transidence. And uh, and it's very much like the Dharma that way. We wanna push away what's unpleasant. Um, so it's, uh, I'm so glad that someone brought it up and that you have this wonderful compassion around it because, you know, in, in uh, Western thought, psychological thought it's not been really well understood uh, for a really long time and we're just sort of in the middle ages with with trauma yeah. and it's really tricky with with practicing so um uh, I wonder if you could just sort of say a little bit more if there's anything to be said about you know the reticence to sort of go back into the dream once awakened um,
0: or especially just to if, think, you mean especially you know. if the dream if the dream is unpleasant you mean yes yeah because you know we're designed our default right um our default our habitual uh reactivity is comfort plan you know whether that's the view that's the right view from the samsaric agenda that's a very limited i wouldn't say wrong but i would say that's a limited view from the spiritual approaches because as i mentioned numerous times spiritual path is not about feeling good unless you're talking about basic goodness The spiritual path is about getting real. And getting real means dealing with the harsh relative realities of what we append to be unwanted experience. And so first thing is, Erica, is to give yourself, you know, my tree is to practice kindness towards yourself, realizing that each one of us in the Western world, and not even Western world right now because globalization, most of the world, we're just simply taught to stay away Um, from unwanted experience. And on one level, not only does this have a cultural, uh, sociological backing, it also has a biological backing. You know, evolutionarily from from the perspective of, of basic Darwinian evolution, we survive by staying away from difficult experiences. And so all this is super important to understand because we have all this history behind us that conditions us to just FedEx out of difficult situations. On a relative level, biological level, we need that to survive. This is also deeply connected to my work on fear. Same thing with fear. But when you're trying to go from the form dimension into the formless, the same tenets that applied at the level of form no longer really apply at the level of the formless, right? And so that's why we have to reverse our views in a very real way. And this is why there's so few people that are actually enlightened. Because all you know the, 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 the history, the momentum, the karma, the habit of all these ways that propel us away from unwanted experiences, they are formidable. You know, pull it, pulling your finger out of a fire is—that's we've been trained biologically to do that. And so that imperative from the biological domain supersedes its its territory, and then tends to dominate spiritual pursuits. And this is why it's super important to understand how to work with fear, how to work at these deeper levels. In fact, with trauma, how to have the skill set, the armamentarium to go into the really difficult situations armed with this radically reverse form of relationship. Um, and so m- maybe say more, Erica, um, again, this is just another one of these really beautiful deep questions that I could, you know, kind of sideline all, or sidebar all over. So maybe bring me back to track if you want me to say something more about this. But that's, that's what comes uh, it.
5: No, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's extremely uh, helpful. Um, I, um, uh, I think maybe I'm enjoying the nightmares a little bit more, um, in, uh, in in a way. Um, there's, I, I mean, there's. Very, it's at the end of the day, it's all like slow. It's a slow progression. So I am f- fine that I just can't I can't rush progress. Yes, yeah, sort
0: of exactly, exactly. happens when when, yeah.
5: when, it, when it happens.
0: And you know, Erica, let me just say this. There's two ways to approach this. Um, this so this ties into the you know what I was talking about earlier. Uh, teachings on emptiness and how they become so applicable here so there are the relative and absolute approaches to what you're talking about so the absolute approach to working with nightmare and this ties in a little bit to what judith was talking about with deities is to understand nightmare principle and the fundamental absolute nightmare principle is in fact reification right this is super important mistaking things to be real so there's two reasons we suffer in the dream, and then you can extrapolate that to the waking reality. The primary reason we suffer in the dream is because we mistake what appears to be in the dream to be real, we reify it. That's our default, we reify everything. We think that monster is real, we think that scary thing is real. The teachings and emptiness work with waking you up from this nightmare of reification at the absolute level. So that's one central thing that really supersedes everything. On a relative level, then we have the stuff you were talking about before that you were alluding to, that what we reject in um, conscious experience, you know, out of sight is not out of mind, out of sight is into the unconscious mind, your body. And so therefore refuse transforms into the refuse heap of the unconscious mind. And so when you go to sleep and the, you know, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, all the executive parental functions of your mind are, are taken offline then guess what happens? The parents are all gone. What happens? The kids come out to play, so to speak, right? Everything comes up. And so um, understanding that, having the view of that, you know, then you can start to befriend it. You can have a sense of, of levity, humor, playfulness. And like you're starting to do is slowly, you know, change your relationship and embrace it. You know, when you reject part of your experience, you've thrown a boomerang. You've thrown part of yourself away. Um, because it's unwanted. And so, you know, you're going to throw a boomerang. It's going to come back. It's either going to come back in its dream or mostly it's going to come back symptomatically. It's going to arise fundamentally, and this is how far this goes, it's going to arise as the entirety of your so-called conscious life, an avoidance strategy to stay away from this. So if you understand that, again, the power of view, the, the absolute view that it's empty The relative view that you're simply working with disenfranchised, disaffected aspects of your being allows you to to gradually, 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 but um, radically transform your relationship so that you realize, you know, like I mentioned many times, you know, um, thoughts are the children of your mind. Dreams are the children of your mind. Um, and sometimes those children in those dreams are throwing tantrums. They're radical. They're, you know, they're kind of not so easy. But with the right view, you, know, you don't throttle your kids. You don't strangle your kids, even when they're nightmarish. You, what do you do? You love them. You embrace them. And by, again, you know, like with Ted's question, you, you meet fear with love. You meet um, hate with love. And so eventually, armed with these tools and the skill sets and the lucidity practices that allow you to implement them, you will learn how to love these tantrum throwing aspects of your mind. Because what else is in there, Erica? There's no pre-existing landscape. It's just your mind. And so this alone, you know, this is a like slow game changer where you just open, accommodate, and, and make love to whatever rises in your mind. Something
5: like that well the the this is it's amazing that you put it in this way because what van der Kolk says what whatever mm-hmm. uh we we uh exile in our sort of those internal family systems, we add insult to injury
0: that's exactly right,
5: yeah, and that's so right. I'm really <clears throat> it's very I'm appreciate the lens that you're expressing it in because it's it's helpful to to make that leap from you know a trauma escape to like a, a dreamscape that's somehow transformative.
0: Yes, exactly, and it's all basically good. I mean, this is so hard for us as Westerners to get. Trungpa Rinpoche spent his life trying to convey this. The wisdom traditions, really, I mean, again, I'm, I'm so into this right now because, you know, I'm writing this book now on contraction and reverse meditation. And the first chapters, first two chapters are about right view and sacred view. It's all about creating and believing the fundamental inherent sacredness, goodness, divinity of whatever arises. And that, again, is monumental. So, thanks for the great question, Erica. I really appreciate thank it. You. And, thank and, you, Andrew. Uh, as usual. So, Andy. Congratulations. We can take, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We can take maybe one more and then I try to limit it to an hour and a half. And The other ones will queue in for next week. Okay, perfect. Well, then, next with the audio will be Karen.
6: Thank okay. you. Can you see me? Okay. I
3: can. Hi,
0: Karen. All
6: right. I've been uh, studying with you for some time, quietly on the sidelines, and it's Thank meant you. a great deal to me.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate that.
6: Yeah, I'm very interested in the study group coming up. So something exciting happened. I wanted to share with you. Okay. Cool. Last night, um, I found myself. I was was I was asleep. I was in a very, very bright light. Very bright crystal clear environment, much brighter than any dream I've had. And so I was kind of in a panic, is this a dream or is it reality? And that was just such an unusual experience for me. And so I saw a um, somebody who had died. So I said, oh, this must be a dream. So it continued to be very clear and different than any dream I've ever had. Oh, cool. I've had dreams sort of that kind of like hazy and I'm kind of in there and I've been done some flying and this and that, but none of them had this quality of brilliance of light. Very cool. But the the actual content is a little difficult for me to remember. I remember there was food and I tasted the food and it tasted particularly vivid. And there were a lot of people, but I can't remember what was uh, happening, a little less anxious than usual in my anxiety dreams. But the ending was similar to my everyday dreams, which is it was hard to get home. Trying to find a way, a transportation to get home, and being very emotional about that. So I'm so glad to talk to you today, Andrew, because the uh, I'm, I'm reading the first few chapters of your book, but the brightness of the light and the, the kind of moment of, hey, am I in a dream? Or is this real? Was just so different. I mean, even I've had um, nice. Nice. quite a number of experiences with ayahuasca. Yeah, yeah. And I, it, even that, I knew that I had taken something. Yeah. And okay, so it's a special experience, although it just takes you, and you have to go with it. But anyway, so I was wondering what you thought of that.
0: Oh my gosh! First of all, congratulations. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Yeah, and and. Um, these kind of dreams can really change you, right? I mean, because they're, they're so foundational, they're so true, they're so illuminating that they act as, as what the, the traditions sometimes talk about as a pointing out transmission, where they can point out truer dimensions of being that um, are often suffused with light and um, the kind of emotional affective delight that comes, there's a wonderful play on word, delight the, the, the that comes from kind of bathing in this, in these foundational dimensions. And so, I mean, it's interesting. At the end you talked about how it's difficult to, to come home, right? You have a hard time finding your way home. Mm-hmm. That, that could be one of two things, you know, that we could be unpacked with a little discussion is one is, you know, coming home to the relative self sense or more, most, most importantly, actually how difficult it is to come home to the nature of who we really are which is in fact this light. And so I'll let you suss out which one of those two it is, probably the latter, that you know we, we all have this type of homesickness, we're all um, fundamentally looking for this you know, foundational homecoming. And so when you return to this kind of bed of mind, you will discover fundamentally that it is light. What that light is, obviously, like I mentioned at the outset, very subtle, deep, big topic, but most important thing is you've tasted it, you've touched it, you've felt it. And then that can inspire you to like, you know, aspire. I want more. I want quote unquote carefully because you don't want to grasp after it because um, it'll backfire. You want to aspire towards it, a kind of soft wanting where it actually points out something that now you can revisit, stabilize, and then spread the light, share it so that eventually that light not only um, illuminates your dreams but eventually illuminates your entire life. That's the point where you fundamentally realize that everything you experienced in that state and felt literally just as real or unreal as this. And so think about how your world would change if you could relate to this the way you related to that. I mean, what a beautiful thing that would be, right? So. um,
6: Well, I didn't, just one detail here. I didn't have any choice in anything. It proceeded like a dream and I couldn't say Oh, I think I'll change this, or I'll have any volition.
0: Yeah, yeah, no need, no need. And in fact, that's okay. in, a, in a very real sense, the content also doesn't really matter. Um, oh, really?
6: Good. No,
0: yeah. <laughs> no, the content doesn't really matter. It's it's that underlying, more foundational um, tenor that's the most important thing. And even just witnessing it, not engaging it, you know, just kind of bathing in it, soaking in. In, uh, I think I, I read one scholar sensitive scholar and mystic was writing about a similar experience. And she said it was like taking a bath in God, which I thought was just beautiful, you know? So maybe that speaks to what you feel. And so these are fantastic because again, they're, they're yams, they're powerful markers. Um, They can really inspire us to just, you know, keep going and you realize that, Hey, there's something quote unquote really here. And so that's part of what you're touching into. So thank you for sharing that, that's really lovely. Yeah, thank you so right. much. Welcome. So bye everybody, I gotta go. Andy, please do me a favor and, and queue in if there are other people that had questions, we can put them at the front of the line for next week. But we'll be back on Tuesday, uh, Thursday. we'll keep this one o'clock slot, seems to work better for everybody. Um, and until then, everybody wash your hands, wear your mask, and keep your heart open. Okay, bye.